0: This is a Triple J Podcast. Hack. Hey, Tim Shepard with you for the Hack Podcast. Trying to date can be a real struggle these days. There's too many apps. You're seeing the same people over and over again. I mean, how many times can you ask someone about their job or what their favorite color is? Something you hopefully haven't had to deal with is dating when you're really sick. A lot of people with a chronic illness say they struggle with the idea of just trying to meet people let alone starting a relationship. Plus, we're going to find out what's going on in France after some Muslim schoolgirls were sent home for what they were wearing. But there's something else we need to get to first. Hack.
1: In terms of pain, I've never experienced anything like it in my life.
0: On Triple J. Look, having kids might be a long way off for a lot of you, but it's something that many of you think about and are already talking about. And if you're scrolling through Instagram or TikTok, you may have come across videos from influencers or or young parents They might be talking about things like calm birthing or hypnobirthing or how to look after a baby once they're born. And a lot of these messages can be really positive and helpful, but there are concerns that some might also be giving young people unrealistic expectations about pregnancy and giving birth. Shalana Madora is going to break this one down for you but just a warning, this story does contain descriptions of birth trauma and mental illness, so you may want to switch off.
2: The whole attractive aspect behind like the calm birthing and that sort of stuff is, you know, they bring you in with lines like, oh, you can literally breathe your baby out and have like the pain-free experience
3: And it. Did you know birth could be peaceful? Kira McKenzie was 22 when she gave birth to her son. She was drawn to hypnobirthing, a technique she'd read heaps about on Facebook and Instagram. I guess when you're particularly like a first time
2: mum who has no idea what I was expecting, you look into that and you're like, yes, that
3: sounds great. That's exactly what I want to do. But things did not go according to plan. It was a long, drawn out and painful birth. And Kira said she was dismissed by some of her midwives. The midwives were kind of like, oh, you know, she's not handling well.
2: And in one point, like, I was called hysterical because I was
3: in tears from pain and exhaustion. That sense of not being listened to massively added to the trauma that Kira experienced. We're not going to run through all of her injuries because they're super hectic. But Kira suffered a lot of physical injuries as well as psychological ones. Her son wasn't breathing when he was born and had to be revived. The whole thing prompted a flare-up of Kira's bipolar disorder and gave her post-traumatic stress disorder. And every night when I fell asleep, that's all I could think about.
2: So it became, like, 24-7 focus on, like, nearly my body's
3: way of being like, hey, you need to stop, you need to work through this now. On top of that, Kira felt like she hadn't lived up to the expectations that social media had set up for her birthing experience. You feel like you did something wrong or that you failed
2: and
4: you kind of feel ripped off. Research suggests that one in three Australian women view some aspect of their birth experience to be traumatic.
3: Amy Dawes is founder and CEO of the Australasian Birth Trauma Association. She says trauma can happen during pregnancy, birth and after the baby is born too where you live, what language you speak at home and whether or not you've experienced sexual assault can all play a huge role in the health care
4: you receive. Birth trauma doesn't discriminate with age, with your nationality, although there is a disproportionate burden of adverse perinatal outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mothers and babies.
3: Amy says social media can give us unrealistic expectations of birth and the very real dangers it presents.
4: There's a perception that there's a right way to birth and that sets people up for failure.
3: both positive
2: and negative, so there's always opportunity to utilise social media as a network of sharing information but the challenge there is that the information shared is whether it's evidence-based or if it's
3: appropriate for that individual. Alison Weatherstone is the chief midwife at the Royal College of Midwives and she reckons social media can be really empowering for people.
2: And I think that provides more of an informal opportunity when you're with your midwife and you're having your antenatal appointment to bring up things or feel comfortable to bring things up that you've
3: read or seen in social media. Alison thinks social media can help build a community for people who may have experienced birth-related trauma. It's also good for women to realise that they're not alone and that other people may have experienced something similar. New South Wales is currently holding an inquiry into birth-related trauma and all of this means that birth-related trauma isn't hidden in the way it used to be. So it is
2: really important that we're having these conversations and that women feel um, seen
3: and heard. Kira says social media still plays an important role for young mums to be, but she has this piece of advice for people listening to help them get the most out of their birthing experience. Take every bit of advice that you're going to get around it with a grain of salt.
2: Like in the end, if something doesn't feel right to you, put your foot down and be like, no, that's not happening. Hack on Triple
0: J. Big thank you to Shalana Midori for that story. And of course, if it raised any issues for you or anyone you know, Lifeline is always there. You can reach them on 13 11 14. Getting some text in about this one. Jane says, things never go to plan with giving birth. I know. And the second child is no easier. Well, I want to talk more about this because it is an important issue. Rochelle Chi is an associate lecturer from CQ University she's also a midwife so she knows a lot about this topic Rochelle, thank you so much for coming on hack
1: Thanks for having me
0: I want to ask how difficult or traumatic can giving birth be
1: I think for the most part uh, most people will have a birth that they don't perceive to be traumatic but uh, certainly there's the possibility that there may be events that occur during birth that uh, can cause trauma for women and often that's trauma that can uh, affect them and their mental health for the rest of their lives really. It's something that people also uh, following their births can struggle to recognise and struggle to know how to seek support and uh, how to get help.
0: I mean we've been hearing how more people are searching for medical advice online about a range of issues As a midwife, have you noticed that more young people are are coming to you or your colleagues asking about things that they've seen on on apps like TikTok and Instagram?
1: So uh, interestingly, in my own experience, I've not seen more people coming to me and asking me about it. But We do know that uh, health information seeking is really, really common on the internet and on social media, but we also have research that tells us that quite a lot of people won't actually bring that information forward to the healthcare providers. So in spite of the fact that it may not necessarily be being brought to me or even um, other midwives, people are definitely accessing health information from social media. And I guess it's probably a little concerning that 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 might not. Be being brought to the attention of uh, healthcare providers so that they can have a discussion about it.
0: Do you think some of these young parents are a bit worried about raising it with healthcare providers in terms of maybe they think they might be judged or it might be perceived as wrong?
1: I mean, yeah, I think certainly there there might be that idea that if you're going to make a decision that's based on information that you don't perceive to be concurring with what the health service is telling you, or you might have had an experience where a health practitioner has in the past said, no, we don't agree with that, then certainly you might not want to bring it up because you're fearful of making a choice that doesn't align with what you think your healthcare providers will want you to do.
0: This is Hack on Triple J. I'm Tim Shepard, and I'm speaking with Rochelle Chi, who is an Associate Lecturer with the Central Queensland University. She's an expert in midwifery, and we're talking about the rise in social media having an influence on how young parents want to give birth and raise their children. Another part of social media is that it can encourage people to try and recreate something that they've seen online. Has there been kind of a push or any kind of pressure where young mums or parents see how someone else's story has unfolded and they think that they have to do something similar and if it doesn't go to plan then that could be a problem?
1: Yeah, definitely. So uh, one of the things that we certainly see as far as social media influences go is that uh they can be really great for you know sharing helpful ideas and and whatnot but the reality that they present is highly crafted to look as though they are creating an achievable image or demonstrating achievable behaviors that everyone can sort of emulate but often those images they're crafting are a really idealized version the highest idealisation of, of normal that they can really get away with. It creates this expectation of how parents should be behaving, mums should be behaving, or what they can expect from their pregnancy and birth that realistically isn't going to be a universal experience for everyone and isn't going to be easily achievable for everyone. We don't have a lot of research which tells us exactly what the problems could be but in terms of social media influences, but We do know that where people uh, have expectations for their childbearing experiences and their realities don't measure up to that, that that can really um, lead to really undesirable emotional consequences. So, you know, sadness, guilt, anger, frustration and and feeling really wrong. And that could, of course, have implications for that person's mental health.
0: And if that does happen to someone, what do they do? Do they need more support, antenatal care or other health professionals that they need to go to?
1: Yeah. So if if people are experiencing feelings like that from not, you know, having achieved the birth that they wish or not having the uh, postpartum parenting experience or recovery that they hope to have and they're they're experiencing those negative feelings, uh, they should definitely seek help from their um, healthcare providers. So their GP, if they have a midwife who they're still in contact with, um, because that would be definitely their first port of call. And there's also a lot of really good online resources that we have in Australia. So we have Panda, which is the Perinatal Anxiety and uh, depression website and we have the um, cope.org.au website which have so many great resources for parents who are experiencing poorer mental health following their births.
0: And you mentioned information there because I do want to ask, you know how do you ensure that the right information is reaching people? Because if a lot of young people go into apps like TikTok and Instagram or other um, social media apps, do you think that health bodies and governments and maybe midwives should be doing more in those spaces to try and reach people?
1: Yeah, so that's a really good point. As a profession, I suppose, in terms of health and, and maternity care, we're not terribly present uh, in the social media space, particularly uh, on TikTok. You do see in terms of medical presence or other health disciplines that there is a bit more of a professional presence, but not in terms of midwifery. So we know that that is an empty, empty sort of space that, you know, leaves a space for um you know, health services and midwives to jump in there and start disseminating some, um, you know, evidence-based information and and details to people who are consuming that, certainly.
0: All right, Rochelle Shee, thank you so much for coming on Hack.
1: No worries. Thank you.
0: That was Rochelle Shee, a midwife and an associate lecturer at CQ University talking about how social media is changing the way some young parents are approaching pregnancy and getting a lot of messages coming in on this. Hope says, it's so hard when people are posting their perfect birth on social media. Unfortunately for some people, the birth can feel totally out of your control. Another person says, most mothers I've met with birth trauma went the medical intervention route. All right, it's time to head overseas.
5: A new school year will begin in France and so does a new government ban on what it considers religious clothing.
0: On Triple J. There's something happening in France that's getting people fired up. The French government has banned school students from wearing an item of clothing that's worn mainly by Muslim women and girls. It's called an abaya, and for allegations the ban is racist... But the French government says it's just upholding laws that have been in place for a long time. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Text in on 043975755. April McLennan is here to bring you up to speed. It's
6: just a crazy racism and a crazy Islamophobia. Lubna Regig is the president of the Muslim Students of France. She's talking about the French government banning a bias in state-run schools. An abaya is a long, loose-fitting robe that's mainly worn by Muslim women. We're talking about headmasters chasing up students in highways or or teacher waiting every morning for the Muslim students to control their outfits or even condition their access to the classroom if they don't have shorter outfits. Way back in 2004, France decided to ban religious symbols in state-run schools, including Muslim headscarves, Jewish kippahs and large Christian crosses it caused hundreds of students to take to the streets in protest of the headscarf ban. Like in any other religion, there are main principles that they must be followed. So uh, when there is a voting against one of the principles of Islam, it is against Islam itself. When there is a law against uh, one of these religions, it's against the human rights and against democracy that they claim. And now the French education minister says the Abaya also goes against the country's strict secular
0: laws. In recent months, as we know, there has been a considerable increase in attacks on secularism, particularly with the wearing of religious dress such as abayas. In the face of occasional blows, attacks and attempts at destabilization, we must and will stand united. Standing together means being clear, the abaya has no
5: place in our schools.
6: But Lubna argues the abaya isn't actually a religious garment. It's actually a cultural one. Anyone who does an internet research can see that, although the government don't seem to really care about this information and still ban it. It's being reported that on Monday, which was the first day of the ban, 300 students turned up at state-run schools wearing the abaya. Most of them agreed to change their clothes, but 67 students refused and they were sent home. While the government has taken these figures as a sign that the ban has mostly been accepted, there's now questions being raised over whether they should just bring in school uniforms instead.
7: We'll be paying close attention to how this applies to school principals. Because if you have an extremely tough posture, you risk pupils leaving public education and taking refuge in private education. The
6: ban has had pretty mixed reactions. A union of school principals welcomed the decision, while others criticised the move, calling the government the clothes police. There's also concerns the ban will lead to racial profiling of students.
4: Because will a non-Muslim wearing a maxi dress bought at the same in the same retailer as a Muslim one will be preventing from wearing it? Is it a bayad depending on the origin of the person or the supposed religion?
0: Hack on Triple J. April McLennan reporting there. So, why does France have a history of doing this? And what happens now that some of these children have pushed back? Well, to answer those questions, I've got Dr. Renee Barker with me. She's from the University of Western Australia and she's an expert in religious freedom. Renee, thank you so much for coming on Hack.
4: Great to be here.
0: Why did the French government ban this long robe called the Abaya?
4: The French government is banning this in the context of public schools in particular because France has a very strict concept of secularism where they seek to separate uh, the state and religion um, in public spaces. And one of the spaces that they see to be public are are public schools and, and French schools. And so what the government is seeking to do here is to separate education and religion, and they have decided that this particular garment, the Abaya, is a religious symbol um, and they already have a ban on the wearing of religious forms of dress. Uh, most commonly one people we think about is the hijab or the niqab, which are the head mm. coverings and face coverings. But this is a dress uh, that is worn sometimes over other clothing um, rather than a face or a head covering. Um, but it's it's a reinterpretation of an existing rule and a a, a more st- even stricter application because of course many young women may choose to wear long dresses and long uh, robe-type dresses, but for some reason the the government has decided that they're going to be quite strict on those girls, uh, Muslim girls, who are wearing this dress for religious reasons.
0: You mentioned France's stance on secularism. Why does France take such a hard stance against that idea throughout its history?
4: That goes back to a deep history in France of the French Revolution um, and separating the church, which was back then, of course, the Catholic Church from the state. Um, And that has evolved over time into an understanding that religion and the state and public functions should be very separate. And so France has adopted this view of secularism that not only must the government not be religious and the government be uh, separate from religion, but also individuals who embody the state, teachers, public officials. And in this instance, schoolchildren attending public schools must also separate their religious and their state identities. It's become very uh, ingrained in French culture and in French society and leads to these restrictions on the expression of public religion in public spaces.
0: So France has this history of secularism. It's been around for a while. This is not the first time that they've banned uh, what they say are religious garments. Then, is this latest decision that controversial in terms of the wider population?
4: It, it is because it's now starting to target a garment which has multiple connotations. So as I said, the abaya is effectively a long, loose-fitting dress. And while, yes, the abaya itself uh, comes from a, right, specific Muslim culture, long, loose-fitting dresses can be worn for a matter of fashion. And this is falling into a space now where the state is discriminating between people on their ethnicity, on their religion, on what sort of fashion they can wear because if you're a Muslim and you wear a long loose-fitting gown dress then it must be for religious reasons but if you are secular or of another religion then it wouldn't be. So it's entering into quite a a difficult territory. And although these uh, separation of state and religion and the restriction of the wearing of religious uh, dress and clothing and symbols in public spaces has a long history in France, that doesn't mean it's not uncontroversial. It is a real problem and is challenged internationally because of the restriction it places on freedom of religion, the potential to create flashpoints for extremism and the potential to alienate large portions of the population who may have a very deep, uh, very genuine, very sincere religious belief and are now torn between the ability to enter these public spaces while expressing their religious identity and being true to their religion. So it's while it's got a long history in front, it's certainly not one that has been uncontested.
0: You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Tim Shepard and I'm speaking with Dr Renee Barr from the University of Western Australia about Muslim schoolgirls in France who've been banned from wearing a type of clothing called the abaya. I want to ask, what kind of message does something like this send to Muslims across France?
4: So It's very confronting. It is another reminder that they're Uh, expression of their self-identity, of their religion and of their faith is not welcome. And I think that will provide yet another flashpoint in France, that these girls, and remember, this is schoolgirls, so these are children, underage children who are having this rule imposed upon them, some of the most vulnerable people in any society, girls and girl children.
0: Okay, I want to move on to what happens now, because as we've heard, hundreds of public school students defied the order to not wear the abaya this week. And while some did end up changing their clothing, dozens of others chose not to and they were sent home. Do you think this kind of protest or defiance will make any difference?
4: Look, it's hard to tell. Uh, I think what will make a difference is not if the Muslim girls protest, but if their classmates join them. I think while they are a vulnerable minority group, seem to be defying the state, then they think the school will keep pushing back. What might make a difference is that if other people are seen to support the girls and their desire to wear this particular form of dress uh, to school, then that might sway the government. But the, the French government has a long history of this. So, it would be a very long and and very challenging fight for the families and the children involved.
0: And I wanted to ask about any legal challenges as well, because we are hearing that there is a legal challenge in the works, but I'm imagining if this is something that's been around for a while, then that wouldn't have much of a chance
4: necessarily. Uh, The French bans on the nakab have been challenged in the past, and in one case successfully and in one case unsuccessfully. Um, And though a law may have been around for a while, if nobody's actually taking it through all of the the appropriate challenges, then we actually don't know as to whether or not that law is in fact valid. So I wouldn't necessarily say that because this has been around for a while that the challenge will necessarily be unsuccessful. Um, It really will come down to uh, particularly which avenue which they take to challenge it. um, And the the particular facts that they use in that particular
0: case. Dr Renee Barker, thank you so much for coming on Hack today.
4: You're very welcome.
0: That was Dr Renee Barker from the Uni of Western Australia talking about the French government banning a type of clothing worn by Muslim women and girls from state schools across the country. All right, it's time to move on now.
5: Hack. I always wondered how somebody could bet on a future with me. On Triple J.
0: you to think back to the last time you went on a date, how did it go? It can be pretty stressful, right? I mean, it's easy to get worried about whether or not they like you. Do they think you're boring? Have you said the wrong thing? It's something we've all been through, but imagine doing that while you're living with a chronic illness. Because for people in that position, the idea of dating can be really overwhelming. Sometimes to the point where they choose just to avoid it altogether. If this is something you've experienced. Maybe you don't date for that reason. Maybe you've dated someone who was living with a chronic illness. Text in on 04 39 Sarah Harvey has this story.
7: Navigating the dating world can be daunting at the best of times, but the whole experience can be even more nerve-wracking if you live with a chronic illness. Around one in two Aussies live with a chronic condition, things like endo, lupus and Crohn's disease, just to name a few. These conditions can take a huge toll on your life and add a layer of complexity when it comes to dating.
5: Cystic fibrosis is only one scary Google search away for somebody who wants to to read more about it or listen to more about it.
7: That's Bradley Drybra. He was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis when he was just three weeks old. For the first 18 years of Bradley's life, his health was pretty stable.
5: CF didn't really provide me with any symptoms that stopped me from living life like any other sort of kid or someone growing up would.
7: But eventually things took a turn.
5: It was really when I turned 18 and I started to have some more challenging sort of cystic fibrosis symptoms where I was you know, having lung infections and spending a few weeks in hospital and having bleeds in my lungs and having more regular challenges that it started to dawn on me that cystic fibrosis is something that can be quite difficult to live with.
7: During this time, a lot of his mates were getting into relationships, but Bradley took a step back from the dating world, worried his condition would scare away potential partners.
5: You know, a lot of the statistics said that cystic fibrosis had a life expectancy of maybe 36 to 41 years of age for most people. So I always wondered how somebody would be able to stomach that and be comfortable with that, especially someone who was thinking about being in a relationship with me long-term. And I used to think that nobody would be able to deal with that.
7: Kate Lloyd is a clinical supervisor and relationship counsellor at Relationships Australia. She says Bradley's experience is really common among those living with a chronic condition.
8: Some of the common concerns are things like fear of being judged and people making assumptions about them um, and not understanding the condition. And that real fear of they're going to be a burden or they are a burden, it's going to be too much, why would somebody take this on? And also how is this illness or condition going to impact on emotional intimacy in the relationship, physical, sexual intimacy?
7: Kate says another common concern is around if and how they should reveal their health struggles to prospective partners.
8: Some people choose to wait until... They've built a little bit of trust, they've got to know someone and they've thought, yeah, I'd like to spend more time with them. But others think, "Nope, nah, I just want to get in there, tell them straight up, this is who I am. And if they want to walk away, do it right there and then before I get close.
7: She believes a lot of the hesitation towards dating comes down to misconceptions people have about chronic conditions.
8: I think a lot of nervousness or anxiety often comes about when we're uncertain and there's a lot of unknowns and that once we're having more understanding of what it might look like and what it might mean then we have some sort of things we can get practical about and we can sort of negotiate and navigate. She
7: says there's no right way to go about dating but the most important thing to do is to look after yourself in the process.
8: Be kind to yourself, take it at a pace that works for you and Think about what you can offer and bring to a relationship. Look beyond your illness. That's not your
5: identity, it's not who you are, it's one aspect of you.
7: As for Bradley, he managed to confront the insecurities holding him back.
5: I remove this weight of expectation off my shoulders that everything had to happen the way I thought it would and I, I removed this limiting belief that I didn't deserve it or that it wasn't there for me or that, you know, love wasn't something I could have because of the condition that I'd grown up with. and. And I think that once you remove that and you give yourself a little bit of the love that you hope to find from someone else, just the world opens up for you. And yeah, most certainly starts with you. And I think it's very hard to, to pour from an empty cup.
7: It was challenging and sometimes uncomfortable, but it paid off. Last year, he met the love of his life, Sophie, and the pair have been inseparable ever since.
5: For us, it's been a, a very quick forming love story. But I think that when you wait, you know, I waited 26 and a bit years of my life to really t- commit to someone and to really find someone that I felt like had all the the values and morals that I wanted in, you know, someone I wanted to spend my life with. And I'm so lucky that I waited for her and I'm really excited for our future.
7: He has this piece of advice for anyone who might be listening.
5: You know, those people who maybe are out there thinking that there isn't a person for them, the most definitely is and it may just be a you know it may just be a case of it's going to take a little while until you find them, but when you do, you know it. Hack!
0: On Triple Jack. Thank you so much to Sarah Harvey with that story, a really powerful one. That's all we have time for on the hack podcast. I'll catch you tomorrow. Hack! On Triple Jack.